This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Def. In for Mike Simpson today, I'm Chris Seatons. And I'm Charles Feldman. Breaking news out of Washington. XA to former President Trump, Steve Bannon, has been indicted on contempt of Congress charges after defying January 6th committee subpoenas. Now, this comes as a, another top figure in the Trump administration says that he will defy a subpoena from the January 6th committee. We will go in depth on all of that. Winter is coming, and it could be be ugly again. COVID cases are on the rise in 29 states, mostly in the north, where temperatures are rapidly cooling down. This has us all wondering if we're in for another surge, and if so, how bad will this one be? And the CDC might be giving up on the idea that herd immunity could stomp the virus out. We might just have to learn to live with it and handle COVID differently. You know, people keep quitting their jobs at a record pace these days. We're going to go in depth into why there's a, such a slowdown of people looking for different opportunities. Meanwhile, inflation keeps going up and it might be a great time to buy a house. Kind of sounds strange, but we'll uh, get into why it could actually make sense. And airlines are having enough problems as it is recovering from the pandemic with staffing shortages and flight cancellations. Now, a lot of people are complaining about customer service and how they have to wait and wait and wait. Yeah, you know, I was re- Reading this morning, Chris, uh, uh, in the paper, a woman who said that uh, she was on the phone because she had to change her reservations with her airline for over four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. And she said she has never waited that long on the phone for any customer service thing. So we will not totally surprising, I guess, these days. No, but we'll try to figure out uh, what's going on and if a fix is in order. Let's start, though, with rising COVID cases. With us is Amber D'Souza, an epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where they've been tracking the case numbers. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. Hi there. So uh, I don't know if, if people should be puzzled or not. Uh, we've got this, what appears to be a, a, a surge in many cases. Colorado, I know, is not doing particularly well. Uh, even in other parts of the world, Germany is in for what looks like a fourth wave. Austria is talking about having uh, more lockdowns, at least in parts of the country. So what's going on? Yeah, well, we we have made tremendous progress. And what, unfortunately... Um, we do continue to see infection spread. So we had big peaks in infection earlier in the summer here in the U.S., and then rates came down, which was really encouraging, but we've seen that reverse. So the past two weeks, rates have begun to slowly increase, and it looks like we're beginning to head into our next surge. But there is hope because we have made so much progress developing immunity through vaccination with more than two-thirds of Americans vaccinated and many others having been exposed to covid we do think that the uh, toll on hospitalizations and deaths will not be as bad as what we saw last winter. Well, Doctor, as Charles mentioned a moment ago, there's talk of new lockdowns in Austria. And I know we all absolutely shriek at the idea of lockdowns. But with Delta, and now we've got Delta Plus on the horizon. Could lockdowns be a possibility in our future this winter? No, I don't think that's likely here in the U.S., um, but that doesn't mean that putting some restrictions in place won't happen. It really depends what's going on with infection. We do know um, a lot. Uh, we know what works, and we the tools we have are building immunization, which we do through vaccination, and then decreasing our risk, which we can do through our own behavior. So we can reduce risk without having lockdowns, and I think that would only happen in the most uh, severe cases of surges and 
um, hopefully we won't be seeing things get that dire um, in the U.S. As an expert in the field, are you less concerned about an increase in cases, that is, people who, who are testing positive uh, for the coronavirus, than you are with a rise in hospitalization and, and death rates? And if so, uh, is that because of the vaccinations? Well, the rise in case, cases really is not good. Um, we're not going to be, eradic- be able to eradicate coronavirus. When you're vaccinated or when you've had COVID and developed some immunity that way, it does reduce your risk of getting infected again, but, but it reduces it, but you can still get infected and you can still transmit that infection. So that means that even if we are able to get really high levels of immunity, we won't be able to completely stop the spread. Vaccinated people are less likely to spread the infection. They're they're infected for a shorter period. And most importantly, they do not get as ill. So we absolutely will have a reduction in the hospitalizations and deaths, but it's not to zero. You can, um, you know, still be pretty sick. So the fact that this continues to spread, it's going to be continue to be a challenge during this coming year. Dr. Much is made about the concerns over Thanksgiving and the Christmas holidays fast approaching, uh, but those are typically small family gatherings. Tell me, how concerned are you when you see tens of thousands of fans, some masked, many not, jamming football stadiums, hockey and basketball arenas, the like? Well, you know, I think it's been very variable how we've dealt with it. Getting together in those really large mass settings when they're outside and when there's preventions in place, like checking that people are vaccinated or have a negative test, you know, those, if those precautions are in place, I think it can be reasonable because you're reducing risk. But when you're getting together in large groups inside or you're getting together in large groups either way without risk prevention, like having uh, ensuring that people aren't positive who are coming in, that they're vaccinated or have a negative test, we are introducing, you know, uh, settings where we know infection spreads. And we've seen more and more venues doing that. So I do think that with rates increasing this winter, we do have to look at what additional restrictions can be put in place to just help keep everybody safe. All right. Dr. D'Souza, thank you again. That's Dr. Amber D'Souza, epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. As we mentioned, former advisor to uh, former President uh, Trump, Steve Bannon, has just been indicted by a federal grand jury. He's charged with contempt of Congress. This after defying the January 6th committee subpoenas. And this comes as a lawyer for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows says his client will defy a subpoena from the committee. With us now is Daniel Lipman, White House and Washington reporter for Politico. Daniel, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, on this late uh, breaking story with Steve Bannon, uh, is the thinking in Washington that now that he has been indicted, this might motivate some of the others like Mark Meadows who are refusing to testify? Uh, Perhaps they all have a change of heart. I think that's probably the implicit hope, but I think they're kind of just looking at the facts of the case. And given that he has defined this congressional subpoena, uh, that they thought it was important to uh, kind of hold him accountable uh, and uh, almost make an example of him, but uh, just to kind of sticking to the four corners of the law, uh, the Biden Justice Department has wanted to be seen as independent of the White House. Uh, and so 
that's you know one reason why uh, they are you know trying they don't really keep the White House informed as much in terms of what they're doing. Would you say it's fair to say up until this point a lot of people watch uh, Washington watchers have looked at this and, and said what power does this committee really have in trying to force people to speak with them or is it simply I don't want to and I won't and, and maybe we're starting to get some answers to that. Yeah, I think people were wondering about uh, the power of this committee because you know, congressional committees you know, can sometimes be seen as uh, toothless. But with this indictment, I think it's a clear signal to the other people who are uh, not cooperating that uh, maybe they should reconsider that. Uh, and you know, if they want to get arrested and if they want to face jail time or fines, that's their own decision. But most people don't because it hurts their reputation. Uh, and uh, you know, even though they're willing to stick their neck out for Trump. So not at the risk of uh, going to jail. So, Daniel, let's, since you mentioned about going to jail, so let, let's go back to what is likely to happen now with Steve Bannon. What's the protocol? Well, I think the protocol is, you know, they're, uh, you know, this is very early. And so we're still waiting to see, uh, you know, but usually people are kind of booked. Uh, this is the second time in less than two years that he's, he's faced something like this. Um, but this is uh, about Congress before it was about a funding for a, a private wall that they were building on the Mexico border. Uh, but I think uh, he is probably not going to go to jail either. He'll probably reconsider his his, um, his lack of cooperation and, and start to uh, talk to the committee uh, pretty soon once it goes through processing all that. Well, that said, I think there's a lot of people, there's been a lot of discussion, at least uh, amongst the media, th- that the question of how long could this legal process play out? And and in some ways, with a big election coming next fall, the midterms, uh, is this going to be weeks? Is this going to be months? I think they they want to wrap it up by the midterms. Um, and so I don't think it's going to be years, but it could be uh, a number of weeks and months because the court system doesn't it does not operate as fast as everyone wants it to. There are lots of you know procedures, and you can raise objections and file appeals, and so lots of hoops for everyone to uh, go through. I guess just to follow up on that, if if he uh, decides he's going to face you know legal jeopardy and, and do what he's doing right now, you have got Mark Meadows who's just saying he's not going to speak either. If these people continue to do that, this is just going to keep pushing it further and further back. Fair to say. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's other people who w- who are willing to talk to the committee, uh, particularly some of the Pence staffers uh, and some other people who are tangentially uh, connected to this, um, you know, in other parts of the administration. But for the true believers, they want to fight this until the better, better end. And so that's uh, one reason why uh, this is going to take a while. But they're already finding documents and other, other stuff that's interesting, but it's just this whole process. Is is there, uh, again, a notion in Washington that th- those who are refusing to testify, they're trying to run the clock, uh, that they figure that if they can, through litigation, keep this going long enough, we'll have the midterms and the hopes that the Republicans will retake the House and then the committee disappears? I think that's probably uh, a good bet, but that's why Democrats are trying to move as fast as possible with this. Uh, they don't want to cut corners, but they also want to... Um, proceed quickly. And so they know they might lose the midterms. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, that may be one reason why Republicans uh, are trying not to cooperate. Um, and so we just have to see, we just don't know exactly how long this is all going to take. 
Okay. Daniel Lipman. Daniel, thank you. Daniel, of course, the White House and Washington reporter with Politico. So we're going to continue our uh, discussion on the uh, former Trump advisor, Steve Bannon, being indicted now by a federal grand jury. This, of course, because he refused to testify before the uh, commission, the House commission, a committee that's looking into the January 6th insurrection in Washington. With us now is uh, Gene Rossi, attorney, former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. Gene, thank you for joining us on In-Depth. Uh, he's uh, He's been pardoned once already by the former president. I think a lot of people are wondering, uh, could Steve Bannon end up in prison? Uh, yes, he could. Uh, the good news for Steve Bannon is um, he may have an argument that he had a good faith reliance on his attorney to avoid the subpoena or to comply with the subpoena. The bad news for Steve Bannon is uh, if he's convicted of this crime, he will not get a pardon. I doubt Joe Biden's going to pardon him like Donald Trump did for the Southern District of New York. I will say this. What may happen is the district court judge, Judge Chetton, had ruled that there's no executive privilege uh, for documents that were uh, subpoenaed from Donald Trump. That's going to the U.S. Court of Appeals. It probably will go to the Supreme Court. What Steve Bannon's attorney should probably do is ask the trial court in this case to stay the trial pending any Supreme Court ruling on this executive privilege, whether uh, Donald Trump his assertion of privilege should outweigh uh, Joe Biden's decision not to uh, assert the privilege. So if I understand what, what you're saying here, uh, if if you were Steve Bannon's attorney, your position would be essentially that uh, before you go any further with this uh, indictment in terms of prosecuting the client, Steve Bannon, let's first find out whether or not the court thinks this whole executive privilege thing that Mr. Trump and Mr. Bannon have used is legit or not. Is that basically it? <clears throat> Absolutely. I did a uh, civil civil and criminal tax cases for the Justice Department. And in the, in the criminal tax realm, there's a case called Cheek, C-H-E-E-K. If you have a good faith reliance on your attorney's advice, your accountant's advice, that is a complete defense to the crime. Steve Bannon also has a similar defense. He can say, I relied in good faith on my attorney and his advice. So let this thing go to the Supreme Court. If they rule in Trump's favor, that 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 criminal indictment's going to go away. Well, Gene, let's 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 talk a bit about a timeline. Then, how yeah. soon could we get something a decision on this, and how, or how late could it be? Well, I think the I think the Supreme Court is probably going to fast track this. Well, the Court of Appeals for D.C. is going to fast track it. So you probably get an opinion from them in in December, maybe January. The Supreme Court, uh, they move, may move a little slower. They may not issue an opinion until June. Of course, they'll have oral arguments, but they may just uh, uh, deny cert and say that uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is correct. We don't even need to hear it. I think that's what they're going to do. I think the Supreme Court's going to say this is a straightforward issue. It's cut and dry. We don't need to have oral arguments, so we're going to deny cert. That means the case at the, dis the uh, circuit level stays. Um, I, I will say this. Uh, it's an incredibly important issue. I think the Supreme Court might take it up. But Steve Bannon is not, um, is not without some defenses. I, I, I also have to add, yesterday I said that uh, although he's brilliant and has high integrity, 
he's a little cautious, uh, i.e. Merrick Garland. Um, this shows to me that he has fully vetted this issue. And in his humble opinion, his staff, it's it's clear cut. He has no privilege. Gene, I'm curious uh, if you know, uh, in the history of the U.S., uh, how many people have actually wound up in in ballpark figure in in jail because of being indicted for contempt of Congress? (laughs) It's very rare. I think the last person who was indicted for contempt uh, was Rita Lavelle. She was a Reagan appointee with the EPA. She went to trial. And guess what? She was acquitted. Mm. And I haven't Mm. read the trial transcript. I'm sure she raised a good faith reliance defense. And my understanding is she was acquitted. It's a tough case if if that's your defense. All right, Gene, thank you for your perspective. Again, we've been speaking with Gene Rossi, attorney, former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. I'm Charles Feldman. Chris Seedon's in today for Mike Simpson. Well, more and more people seem to be quitting their jobs these days. Yes, the uh, National Bureau of Labor Statistics says 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September alone, a figure that makes up 3% of the U.S. workforce. This news coming on the heels of businesses creating millions of job openings since April of last year. So the question is, will this quit rate slow down or a trend that is now going to continue? Continue. Which is it? Andrew Challenger is the senior vice president of global outplacement and executive coaching firm Challenger Gray and thanks. Christmas. Thanks for being with us. So, hi. Thanks for. So uh, I, that was the, the the sort of the question at the moment. Uh, is this going to stop this this rate uh, of people quitting their jobs, or is this sort of a, a new post? I know I hesitate to even say post-pandemic because we're in many ways still in a pandemic. Is this a sort of pandemic trend that is going to have legs for quite some time, do you think? Yeah, it's definitely a trend that's going to have legs for some time. Uh, there is just an enormous amount of job switching happening right now. Uh, as companies are raising wages and offering uh, signing bonuses to try to lure people back into the labor force. Uh, they're instead a lot of times luring people away from their competitors or workers in other industries that are switching for higher pay or higher benefits. And it's creating this enormous amount of volatility. Like you said, uh, more quits than we've ever seen in American history, more than 4 million month after month. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any end to it coming soon. Okay, so just so we we have it straight, then these are people who are quitting their jobs because they've got some other job to go to. It's not just a case of I'm fed up with my job, fed up with my salary. I'm quitting and I'm going to sit on the couch for a while. These people have somewhere to go. Yeah, for the most part. I think sometimes the people are calling it the great resignation, and it's a little bit of a misnomer because we're not losing people from the workforce. We're still adding jobs to the economy every month. We're adding more and more people to the workforce every month, although slower than we would like. Uh, But there's not this max exodus happening. Really, it's that workers are feeling really confident that they can leave their job, go find another role uh, for in most cases, a higher pay. So it's not really the great resignation. It's more of the great switch, right? I mean, they're just switching from one <laughs> Side job shuffle. To, yeah, <laughs> to another. So where does this leave employers? It sounds like employers are not in a good place right now then. It's, it is a tough spot for employers uh, because you know, one of the dynamics that's happening is that 
say a restaurant offers a signing bonus and lures an employee across the street to come over and work for them. Well, that lasts, you know, 30 to 90 days. And then they can go back to the company that hired them just before for the signing bonus that they're now offering. And it's like this inflationary spiral upwards uh, that can be uh, really problematic for companies as wages just keep getting higher and higher. I can't help but think as I listen to you that, that in some ways this kind of leads to the status quo. There are so many job openings right now, uh, companies that the employers that just can't fill positions. But as we're seeing now, 4.4 million Americans quitting their jobs to go to other jobs is this not for lack of a better term kind of a circular firing squad it is it 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 does feel like um there's a lot of movement there's a ton of volatility but we're not moving forward in the labor market one of the really key problems is that we're still down five to six million workers who left the workforce in 2019 uh, when in march 2020 when covid hit and have never come back And so as companies keep raising wages, trying to pull them back in uh, to meet this massive hiring need, uh, they're instead just causing a ton of switching. Uh, And I think that that is a better term, the great uh, switching period. Okay, we we coined a new phrase. The the great great switch. The the great (laughs) switch. But but let me ask you, is this great switch uh, stratified? By that, I mean, uh, are we seeing it uniformly? Uh, across all kinds of jobs, blue collar, white collar, uh, tech companies, uh, you know, fast food places, or is it specific to certain types of jobs? Yeah, we really are seeing it across every sector. I, I say, I'd say where the greatest competition for workers is is in what tends to be lower wage. Uh, lower skilled jobs that are in person. So particularly in retail, in restaurants, in leisure and hospitality, those are areas that have had such trouble filling the open positions that they have, that they keep ratcheting up the wages, the benefits, making hours more flexible, adding free college tuition, right? They're doing everything they can to get the workers they need. And that's creating a lot of switching in that area. All right. Andrew, thank you. Andrew Challenger, Senior Vice President of Challenger Gray and Christmas. If you want a house... Now might be the time, though inflation soared at 6.2% last month. Mortgage rates have not been impacted, and real estate experts are saying they have never seen that before. Yeah, it turns out the market is swamped with cash these days, keeping mortgages down. Jeff Lazarson, the president of MortgageGrader.com, Ian Laguna Nagal, he's been an expert in the field for over 25 years. Jeff, thanks for joining us on In Depth. Uh, this has never happened before. Uh, it's such a major disconnect. How is this happening? Well, it, 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 the, the shocker is... That you're right, it hasn't happened, but the, the how is that the world is aflush with cash. And so even though we have all these price inflation, inflation pressures and wage pressures, there's, everybody's got savings. There's money around the world. There's $2.3 trillion in the U.S. in excess savings since the pandemic started. So it just doesn't move the mortgage needle. And, and so even though other prices go up, people are chasing that yield on the mortgage bonds. So they just throw money at it and it keeps the rates down. But at the same token, the price of homes going up, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they just, they're not going up quite at the same pace. I mean, they're still going up, but it's not, it's not as crazy as it was. And it's, it is starting to moderate. So even with these low rates, 
the affordability pressures are really getting to people. And so if rates go up at some point, it, it's it's not going to be pretty. I think you'll see prices start going the other way. Yeah, I was going to ask you if this is something short-term or long-term. How do you see things playing out, perhaps, since we're getting late in this year? How do you see things playing out in 2022? Well, I was thinking, Chris, that rates were going to go up a lot to 35 or 4%, but now I'm not so sure because this this just shocked me the other day when I saw the Freddie Mac rates. So I, I'm i kind of thinking now that rates aren't going to go up that much next year. I, I was thinking three and a half, four, but now I'm thinking, eh, maybe, maybe not so much. So because it takes a long time to absorb all this money. And remember, countries around the world throw money at the U.S. Treasury bond market, too. So it's not just U.S. people putting money into it. It's all around the world. That will buoy things, and, and it might just keep – the mortgage rates low for a very long time. The the other thing I would tell you that nobody's really talking about yet is that things have really slowed down. I mean, besides the inventory problem on the purchase side, inventory super tight, the refi market has really dried up as well. So the the lenders are having in a tough place right now. You could shoot a cannon through most lenders' halls and not hit anybody now. So <laughs> everyone's it's the one industry right now we're going to probably start losing jobs, not not needing jobs. So if there's somebody listening out there that is in the market to buy a home, uh, so the plus obviously is mortgage rates are, are not skyrocketing. The minus is that the home price is probably up. What are the other things that they should know about going into this? Well, the... There's there's so much constraint on on the available homes. I still think that prices aren't going to like dive dive. I think if if you're a long term play, if you want to buy something and you think you're going to hold for five years or, or longer, I would say you you should buy. You shouldn't rent because rent is so expensive anyways. And so if you can put some shekels together and and buy a place or go in with your folks or a friend or something. You should do it because over time, historically, home prices do go up. Even if even during the Great Recession when they crashed, they came back and then and then a ton. So I I think it's a safe long term investment. Just if you think you're gonna not be there for you know five years, if you're gonna sell in less than five years, then I wouldn't do it. But if you're gonna have it five or more, I would definitely buy. Jeff, is the problem especially bad here in Southern California? We're, we're kind of a cocoon here in SoCal. We're, well, in like other markets like San Francisco, New York, I guess as well, where prices really are just so through the roof right now that a lot of young families just find it so hard to get into the market. Yeah, it's it's everywhere, Chris. What we're seeing is a lot of telecommuters. People will go to other parts of the country uh, because they can live anywhere, so they we're, we're seeing a lot of movement to more affordable areas. But not everybody can telecommute to work, so that's the, it, it's 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 a good thing. It's an upside for high wage earners that can go that can be anywhere and work. But but for others that can't, it's 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 kind of tough. But I'm telling you both that the supply constraint is is everywhere. I. I talk to people all over the country all the time in the mortgage business and consumers. And and I, I was talking to somebody in Charlotte, North Carolina, just yesterday, and he, he's telling me, like, it's so bad there, the house is on the market for a day, and then it, and then it, gets, it gets sold. The one, the one thing I would say about this area is that 
you're not having 50 or 100 people making an offer now. You might have, I mean, it's still a lot. You might have five people making the offer, but it's not, it's just not like the bidding wars that they were. And so you can take your time a little more. You could push back on the seller. You can demand repairs. You can just say, this is my, my sales price cap. I'm not going higher. And be prepared to walk away if, if they don't meet you somewhere in the middle because you will find another property. All right, Jeff, thank you again. That's Jeff Lazarson, president of MortgageGrader.com in Laguna Niguel. This is KNX In-Depth. Proceedings in today from Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Airlines, they have been having a very, very tough time bouncing back from this pandemic. Thousands of flights have been canceled as of late. Staffing shortages have been causing problems. Flight attendants constantly having to deal with some very, very angry unruly passengers and now add another problem to the mix the airlines are having big problems with customer service people are complaining about waiting for hours only to have their calls dropped they're having issues rescheduling canceled flights getting refunds with us now is kate hanai who is founder and former ceo of flyer rights an organization that advocates for airline passengers kate thanks for being with us um, so what is a frustrated airline passenger to do when a flight gets canceled? They can't really make the changes online. They head to the phones and then they wait for one, two, three. One woman today was in the newspaper <laughs> saying four and a half hours. What do you do? Well, the only option, unfortunately, that they have is filing a complaint with the Federal Department of Transportation. And their enforcement division uh, is actively engaged in following the rule promulgations that we cause to get passed that are supposed to protect customers. So in other words, you know, there's, there are laws and rules in place that we cause to be in place that say any flight delay, they're supposed to be notified within 30 minutes of any known flight delay or cancellation. They should never take people's bags uh, and put them, you know, on the baggage belt and run them to a plane and then not have the plane fly. I've been through that. It's horrifying. The customer should always come first. And I realize the airlines are in a pickle, but I, I think at this point, the only option for the passengers, if they can't reach someone at the airline, is to file a complaint. Once they file that complaint with the Federal Department of Transportation, they will get a response because the DOT will investigate it and they will enforce that the airline has to either refund that passenger's money and possibly even fine them for the infraction. And sometimes the customer will get a portion of those fines. Well, Kate, let's let's dig down a little deeper into that pickle you, you mentioned. Now, who or what is at fault for all this? Is it simply a case that the airlines cut back so much out of out of necessity because of the pandemic that now they're they're simply struggling to get enough staff back on board to deal with the issues well, like customer service? It's definitely partly that. And I don't think anyone could have anticipated COVID. But at the same time, they should have staffed up. You know, this is a situation where no one wants to get a computer. No one, you can't really deal with a customer service issue on the website. You have to talk to a live person. And if they don't have enough live people to handle customer service, then they probably shouldn't be taking people's money and scheduling more flights. That's part of the issue. You know, how, if they take the revenue, then they need to have the capacity to be able to handle 
what's happening with their aircraft and the clients and the passengers. You know, the, the passengers are the largest stakeholder for the airlines. If they want them to come back later when things recover, they need to treat them well. Now, you know, you mentioned, of course, and you're right, nobody could anticipate the pandemic. But yet the airlines were making this shift before the pandemic away from actual human beings dealing with passengers and trying to shift you pawn you off in many ways to something online. So is it now coming back to bite them on the tail of the plane? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tail, for lack of a better word. Yes, actually, it's totally that it, it, it's. It's exactly that, and I think it's happening all over the hospitality industry. Um, but that, but if people can't get to their cruise ship or to their hotel or to Disneyland or wherever it is that they're going, and they have already prepaid for those things, this is what I would call a cascading problem for the airline passenger because it's not just the flight. It's also, you know, you've prepaid for your hotel, you've prepaid for your cruise, or you've prepaid for tickets to go wherever it is you're going. And if you don't make it, there is going to be a financial consequence to the passenger. And that's totally unfair. All right, Kate, thank you again. That's uh, Kate Hanai, founder and former CEO of Flyer Rights, an organization that advocates for airline passengers. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. This is Chris Seedens in today for Mike Simpson along with Charles Feldman. And as we've mentioned, the uh, breaking news uh, in favor of Britney Spears, uh, the judge has now uh, said that the conservatorship is over. Her dad is no longer in charge of her financial and therefore, I guess, her, her life. Covering this for KNX is Margaret Carrero at the court. Margaret, take it away. Yeah, Charles, um, I had a feeling this was going to happen once the news came down today. If, in fact, it did fall in Britney's favor like it did. There was dancing in the streets. They were popping off like pink confetti, it looked like. I couldn't quite tell what it was. But I just spoke with one young lady who was in tears, happy tears, she told me, because she felt like this really needed to come to an end. And, in fact, it did. The judge basically said, based on everything she heard from all sides, nobody was opposing, terminating the conservatorship of both Britney's person and as well her finances effective today. She said it is hereby terminated. Now, there are a couple of caveats. The last time we were here in court on this case, her father was suspended as the conservator of her estate. And there was a temporary conservator put in place really to kind of handle her financial situation. The caveat here is while the conservatorship as a whole has been terminated, the uh, Pardon me, I'm a little bit out of breath here. Uh, the temporary conservator is just going to stay in place to kind of tie up some loose ends, uh, some things as far as uh, moving some of her assets into her trust, really just tying up some financial stuff. But otherwise, it's a, it's a good day for Britney Spears and a good day for the folks who are out here and on she, Grand Avenue. Yes. And Margaret, uh, uh, she's not, she was not she's in court, not right? No, she was, not, she was not in court, nor was she on uh, the, the video call that they had. She was not present. Okay, thank you, Margaret uh, Carrera. With us now is L.A.-based attorney and legal analyst Harry Nelson. He's been following this case, specializes in mental health care. Harry, thanks for being with us. So, uh, as you just heard our Margaret Carrero say, uh, this conservatorship, conservatorship, there we go, <laughs> is now ended, except for some minor details that have to be cleaned up, uh, I suppose. So, uh, you are, I imagine, not surprised by this, since there was no opposition, right? 
No, we, this is what we were predicting. Uh, you know, it's been it's been uh, building for the last few months, and without uh, without Jamie Spears fighting this, um, uh, it was clear that uh, the judge had a lot of pressure to finally end this uh, conservatorship. So it's it's a good day on that front. Is there any kind of a timeline as to how this happens now, or is just it's it's over as of now, and her money is her money? Yeah, so it should be just a matter of uh, filing uh, the, the judge's order to formally give her. It's going to probably take a, a few days for her to get access to uh, all of her accounts and get removal of uh, you know of the, of the various because there were several conservators doing with playing different functions uh, from her accounts. But this means that within the next few days, Brittany will be free of this, and the, the only thing remaining for the judge to do is to decide whether um, uh, you know Jamie Spears. And it was whether his conduct was abusive, and whether there needs to be any, um, you know, assessment of uh, of monies owed to the to, to Britney's estate from you know for some of his activity or or other sanction against him. Yeah, Harry, t- talk a little bit more about that uh, because some people may think, okay, this case is now over and and she's sort of free of of her father, at least in terms of the financial entanglement. But what's the potential legal jeopardy for him? Yeah, so he so he has not been fully relieved of responsibility. He's on a suspended status uh, with Judge Penny in this case, and what that means is that uh, Judge Penny still has 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 jurisdiction to make rulings as to his conduct and his responsibility as conservator. So it means a couple things. Number one, uh, we had allegations from one of the other uh, uh, co-conservators that his spending uh, in fighting Brittany to maintain his power was excessive, that he was hiring lawyers and publicity, media people, and really dug in uh, and spent significant amounts of her money to, uh, you know, to, to engage in, in, a, in, in a battle for his power. So there's going to be a question over that. There's questions going to be questions about his expenditures on uh, surveillance of her, you know, uh, having, having an IT firm, you know, mirror her every, uh, t- every text and every message she sent recording Supposedly, if, if it turns out to be true, bugging her bedroom. So there's a lot of a lot for the judge to decide whether about whether uh, you know Jamie uh, uh, fulfilled his responsibilities in accordance with the law, or whether he engaged in abuse and needs to uh, to make her a state whole. Well, you 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 spoke about the other conservator or a other conservator. There was uh, the the past lawyer she had. She has a new lawyer now, uh, but a past lawyer who apparently was swaying her in the wrong direction, not properly informing her of everything she needed to know. Is that person considered the other conservator or is that her former lawyer? Oh, no, I, her former. No, her, I, as far as I have not heard any sign that uh, Brittany is, uh, you know, raising issues as to her former lawyer. Um, there were t- there were two separate sides of the conservatorship, right? There was the conservator of the person. That's like whether Brittany was allowed to make healthcare decisions about her, you know, whether she had to take medications like lithium, and questions about her reproductive choices and her right to have a ch- another child. And so uh, that was, and there was a conservatorship of the estate on the financial side. So there were there was, you know, Jamie has been, you know, was was this this last resignation was only. A part of it, but there are actually there have been several other professional conservators in the background uh, who uh, who actually uh, you know were helpful in kind of giving a picture of of what was going what was happening. So um, I, I'll pull you know what, I'm, the name is on the tip of my tongue. Let me see if I can uh, 
if I can pull it up for you quickly. <laughs> That's okay. Harry, thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Harry, thank you. Again, that is uh, Harry Nelson, L.A.-based attorney, legal analyst, joining us on KNX In-Depth. So, Chris, two really big uh, legal issues uh, today. One coming out of uh, Washington, where Steve Bannon, right, the former top aide yeah. to uh, President Trump, uh, is now indicted by a federal grand jury because he does, doesn't want to appear before a congressional committee. And uh, closer to home here in uh, L.A., a judge now formally ending the conservatorship that controlled Britney Spears' life for some 14 years. Very busy day here on KNX In-Depth. Uh, Chris Seaton's in today for Mike Simpson, uh, along with Charles Feldman. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Mike is back in this seat on Monday.